Okay, friends, we will continue now in our time of worship uh, into the sermon, the time where we study God's Word. And, and I promise this won't be a long sermon. I'll try to keep it under 15 to 20 minutes because I know how hard it is to keep our attentions uh, to a screen. Uh, so let's jump right into it. But before we begin, I do have to admit that our sermon today is taken from a passage that perhaps isn't your usual Christmas sermon passage. Why? Well, because I think it's fair to say that this year's Christmas isn't a usual Christmas season either, right? In the backdrop of this year's Christmas is a year and a half long pandemic that's been filled with, with death, with suffering, with disappointment, with anxiety, with, with pain for, for so many people. And now December hits and we're just expected to flip the switch. You know, it's, it's not that easy for many people and understandably so, to just flip the switch like that. How is this world meant to rejoice after it's experienced so much weariness? Well, that's why for our passage today, I wanted to preach on one that talks about the relationship between weariness and joy and how it all relates to the message of Christmas. Okay, if God's pursuit of us sinners through the birth of Christ. And I'm pretty sure you've heard this Bible story before because it's a pretty famous one. It's about a lost son, a prodigal son, who was once lost and then was found. This is the word of God. Let me read the passage first before we study it. Taken from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 32, about the prodigal son. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fat calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus says the Lord. Okay, there's too much in this passage to, to cover in 15, 20 minutes. So I just wanted to point out from this passage two things, okay, for our time today. First, a kind of joy that only weariness can produce. A kind of joy that only weariness can produce. And second, a divine pursuit that only loss can generate. A divine pursuit that only loss can generate. Okay, let's start with our first point, a kind of joy that only weariness can produce. Okay, so the parable we just read, it's, it's a famous one. You probably heard it preached on a lot. There's actually, if you didn't know this, a famous painting based on it. There are poems based on it. There are um, uh, statues actually sculpted based on it. It's, it's a famous one because this story, it has been preached a lot and it's really well known. But what I think often gets overlooked about this story is that people take it as a standalone story, okay? Like it's its own story. But if you read Luke chapter 15 again, as a whole, you'll see that it's not a standalone story. Okay, so let me, just for some interaction, invite you to open up your Bibles or open up your Bible apps on your phones, whatever you're using, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now, Take a look at the title of the first story in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. There, there should be a title there in, in your Bible describing what that story is about. The first story. It's a story about the lost sheep, right? And then take a look at the second story in Luke chapter 15, verses, which is verses 8 to 10. What's the title on that one? It's about a lost coin. Lost sheep, lost coin. And then finally, this last story we just, we just read, verses 11 to 32, it's about what? A lost son. You see, the story of the prodigal son, the lost son, is not a standalone story. It's actually an ending to a larger trilogy. It's an ending to three different stories, all about items that were once lost and then found. Now, if you, play if you pay close attention to these three stories, there is one overarching narrative Right? There's one overarching theme that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. In each story, if you notice, everything always starts off fine. And then a tragedy hits in the middle of the story, right? A sheep is lost or a coin is lost or a son is lost. And then that tragedy gets redeemed. And then through that redemption, a huge celebration, huge joy was produced. Okay, that's the pattern we see in all three stories, right? All is well enter pain and suffering in the middle, then comes redemption, and then at the end, everybody there was happier at the end compared to the beginning. Each story, in each story, everyone ended up much happier at the end of the story compared to the beginning of the story, but here's the kicker, okay? Here's the main point that I'm trying to get at now. They're much happier at the end of the story compared to the beginning of the story, even though, here's the key, even though their life circumstances didn't change at all. Do you see that? Every person in the story had the same amount of possessions they had. They had the same exact life circumstances, situations surrounding them that they had in the beginning of the story. It's the exact same. It's not like 
the shepherd went looking for the one sheep and then found two sheep. And then that's why he's so happy. That's why he's celebrating, because he found more sheep. No. At the end of the story, the shepherd had the same amount of sheep that he did in the beginning of the story. Well, so then why was he happier at the end of the story compared to the beginning? Second story, same thing. It's not like the woman who lost the coin went looking for the lost coin and then found like a treasure chest underneath the couch pillow. You know? No, she had the same amount of money at the end of the story that she did in the beginning of the story. She just found that one lost coin. So why was she, she so much happier at the end? And the third story that we just read about the lost son, it's not like the lost son came back home with a law degree and five grandchildren. It's the same son. Nothing was different to the father's life situation in the beginning and in the end. But yet he was so much happier at the end. Why? We got to ask that question. What contributed to the increase of joy that they all experienced at the end of the story if none of their situations really changed or none of their possessions was added to them at all? Well, here's the answer. The weariness in the middle of the story the loss in the middle of the story, the hardship in the middle of the story, the pain in the middle of the story, the brokenness in the middle of the story. That's what made them happier at the end. But how? How, how does the weariness and the pain and the suffering in the middle of the story produce joy in the end? Well, because the weariness in the middle of the story was redeemed. The suffering was redeemed. Listen, let's get to the point just to cut time, here's what I believe the Bible is claiming regarding the relationship between weariness and joy, okay? The relationship between weariness and joy, that somehow shed tears redeemed will make the world more joyful in the end compared to if the world never shed those tears in the first place. Let me repeat that again. Shed tears um, redeemed. Uh, uh, suffering redeemed, brokenness redeemed, pain redeemed will make the world more joyful in the end compared to if the world never experienced those sufferings and pains and tears in the first place. You see what I mean? It's a, it's a big claim to make, but, but if you read the whole Bible as a whole, it's hard to not see that theme. Theologians of old even had a Latin phrase for this concept called Felix culpa. Shed tears redeemed, brokenness redeemed, pain redeemed will make the world much more joyful in the end compared to if the world never shed those tears to begin with. Let me give you an example from our everyday life that might help us grasp this concept better. Have you ever lost your phone or your wallet for a long time, like two or three days, right? And then you found it again. You remember how you felt at the moment when you found it? How your heart leaped for joy, right? You started praising the heavens. You started kissing your phone, you're hugging your wallet. You felt this ecstatic joy and you wanted to celebrate because you found it again. But did you ever stop to think of why you're that happy about it? Why were you that happy? Think about it. It's not like your phone was upgraded when you found it. It's still the same old phone you had for years. It's not like your money had, or your wallet had more money in it when you found it, it's the same wallet. But somehow at the end of the story, even though your possessions didn't increase at all, weariness redeemed 
had a joy-inducing effect in your heart. You see, here's what the Bible, I think, is, is proposing in Luke chapter 15 in regards to the relationship between weariness and joy. A pastor once put it like this, and if you've been to CCC, you've probably heard me say this a lot. Maybe, just maybe, that things will be much more beautiful at the end, having once been broken and redeemed, compared to if it was never broken in the first place. Maybe things will be much more beautiful at the end, having once been broken and redeemed, compared to if it was never broken in the first place. And that's why God allows weariness to enter the world, to create a greater joy and a greater beauty, beauty that can only be experienced through brokenness redeemed. Okay, some of us may say, so that's it? That's the answer? God just is up there, you know, letting all this suffering happen, this weariness, this brokenness happen? For what? To write a cool climactic story at the end? He's just up there toying with our lives. He allowed this past year and a half to happen so that it can generate a cool story. Is, is that what the Bible is saying? No, not at all. Which leads us to our second point, a divine pursuit that only loss can generate. Okay, so if in our first point, we've talked about the similarities between all these three stories in Luke chapter 15, okay? Now I wanna talk about the difference, a glaring difference actually, between the first two stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin with the last story about the lost son. There's a huge difference there. Did you notice, and if you've read it before, you know, or remember the stories, did you notice that in the first two stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's always someone who went out to look for the thing that was lost, right? When the sheep was lost, the shepherd went out to look for it. When the coin was lost, the woman went out and looked for it. But in the last story that we just read just now for our sermon today, the story about the lost son, if you remembered, no one went out to look for the younger son. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? He just kind of went back home on his own. What's Jesus' point here? Well, his point is that someone dropped the ball in this last story. Someone in this last story didn't do what they were supposed to do because someone should have been looking for the younger brother in this third story, like the other two stories before it. Okay, who? Who should have looked for the younger brother? Well, who do you think would be the most natural candidate in this last story to go look for the younger brother? It's the older brother. That's right, he should have left the father's house to pursue the younger brother, but he didn't. Why not? Well, because we see in the story earlier that the older brother was much more interested in the riches and the inheritance that he had back home, and he didn't want to leave it. Remember that the younger brother, in verse 12 we read earlier, he already took his part of the inheritance. That's what he said to the father in verse 12, right? He said, Father, give me my portion of property, and then he wasted it all away in a far land. It's gone. So everything that was left in the house, it belonged to who? It belonged to the older brother. It was the inheritance that belonged that was left for the older brother. And he just wanted to stay there and enjoy it all. By the way, why do you think he was so upset when the father threw this huge party for the younger brother? Right? When the brother, a younger brother came back, 
one of the reasons why the older brother was so upset is because whatever resources was being used to throw that party by the father, all that stuff actually belonged to the older brother. All of that was his inheritance that would eventually be passed down to him from the father. The robe that the father put on the young brother in verse 22, whose robe do you think that would have eventually been? It would have gone to older brother. The ring that the father gave the younger brother in verse 22, that ring would have eventually been passed down to the older brother. The shoes in verse 22, the money that the father used to buy the fattened calf in verse 23, that was money that eventually would have gone to the older brother. All that belonged to the older brother. But the father gave what rightfully belonged to the older brother all the way to the younger brother, the sinful younger brother, to celebrate his return. And the older brother was mad. He didn't want to share it. Now, okay, some of you are asking, what's your point? Okay, and what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, everything. Think about it again. This story is a story about an older brother who refuses to pursue his sinful younger brother in the far lands in order to enjoy and to hold on to his possessions and inheritance back home. Now think about who's telling the story. Who's telling the story? It's Jesus. Okay, who is he? Well, friends, is he not the Son of God who has come down from heaven to pursue us sinners into the far lands and to share with us not only his material possessions but his own life in order that we may come home to the Father? You know why Jesus told this last story in such a way where no one was looking for the younger brother? He's pointing to himself and saying, I'm the one who has come down to look for you. I'm the one who has come to the far lands to take you home. I'm, so to speak, Jesus is saying here, the true and ideal older brother of this story who's willing to look for you to the far lands and take you home, not only by sharing with you my material possessions, but by shedding for you my very own blood. Why? So that you can leave the pigstand of sin that you're in, be washed clean from all your guilt and all your shame, and come home to the Father's embrace. Is that not, friends, what Christmas is all about. Isn't Christmas all about heaven's pursuit of sinners? Is it not about a divine rescue story of our older brother taking us home? A divine rescue story, by the way, that would have never happened if we weren't lost in the first place. You see, Christmas is a joyful story about divine pursuit that would have never happened if we weren't lost in the first place. Because now, that lostness, that weariness, that brokenness, that pain, that suffering, that sin in the middle of the story has made way for our Creator to show us just how much He loves us by entering Himself into our story to suffer the worst agony this broken world had to offer in order to take us home. 
all to the glory and praise of his name. This Christmas, this story is a Christmas story. Now, let me just end by speaking a little more candidly and directly to you all who are watching this. You've probably known what Christmas is all about, or maybe this is the first time you've heard what Christmas is all about. It's about a divine pursuit of hopeless sinners by a loving God. Now, now here's what's going to make the difference for you, okay? Here's the question I want to ask you. Do you believe that he came for you? Do you believe that this applies to you? See, if, if Jesus is just a generic savior for a sinful world out there, Christmas isn't going to be real in your heart. Is that who he is? Or is he a real savior for sinner you and sinner me? Because look, until you believe that, Christmas won't really be good news to you at all. It's just going to be a cool announcement. <laughs> what does Christmas mean to you? Is it just a cool general announcement about a coming Savior? Or is it the best news you could ever hear that says your sins, your flaws, your mistakes have all been washed clean because your older brother has come to pursue you and die in your place? Friends, I hope you see Jesus' point here in Luke chapter 15 that there is no other way out of this pigstand. There is no other way to clean ourselves up and come home to the Father unless through Him. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and acknowledge our inability to get ourselves off of this pig's ten we're in and clean ourselves up good enough to come to approach you. This story has clearly said that we don't need to clean ourselves up. We just need to come home. Why? because our true older brother has come to pursue us. And he's washed us clean by taking upon himself the filth that was covering us and given us a robe of righteousness we never deserved. He died naked on a cross so that we may be clothed in righteousness and in splendor. So that now, Father, we approach you and we come not only before your throne, but into your loving embrace, based solely upon the work of Christ and his humiliation that started not only on the cross, but all the way back in the cradle, when he was born in the likeness of a servant, when he came not to be served, but to serve, even to die for our sins. Help this message grow deep in our hearts that we may be driven boldly back home to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.